Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I am really pleased to have back on the show Jason Sattler, known throughout the universe as LOL GOP on Twitter. Are, Jason, are you more are you better known by your Twitter handle or by your name these days? Do more people know um, you by the, the latter? Uh, if, if anyone actually knows me, I, I would guess it would probably be through my Twitter handle. It's, it is what my wife calls me. So I, I guess that's that would, that would right. clarify. <laughs> if if you're, once your wife and children start referring to you as your Twitter handle, you've, you've definitely, yeah. you've either arrived or you've reached a dark, dark place in the world. And you're obviously, in addition to being well-known on Twitter, you are a well-known writer, journalist. You've you were a major contributor, USA Today, Slate. You, you've been all over the place. So uh, really pleased to have you back. And we're recording. By the time this hits podcast and the airwaves, your newest article is probably going to be out. But we're talking about it before it even happens. This feels like a gag out of the movie Spaceballs. But I'm really excited to talk about this because I think you've hit on a really, really clever way to look at the, the shifts in, in the electorate and the upcoming midterm elections and what's at stake. So you are looking at Michigan. Why are you focusing on Michigan? And why should the rest of us who aren't in Michigan care? Right. I'd say it starts with shame. And that's the shame I experienced on November 9th, 2016, when my state voted for Donald Trump. Being in New Hampshire, where that almost happened. People don't talk about how close it was in 2016 that Trump almost won that state. You can imagine how how wrecked with that kind of feeling of waking up from a nightmare and, and expecting it to go away persisted for that month of November and lasted for almost four years. Everyone in the country felt it, but in Michigan, the, the, the shame when Pennsylvania and Wisconsin was pretty unique to us. And we had not voted for a Republican in 28 years, and it happened to be this guy. He, he grabbed us by somewhere we didn't want to be grabbed, and, and it, was, it just was a hard thing to recover from. And then the second thought is, we, what we talked about last time on this podcast was looking at how much money Democrats are raising to run against Mar uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, which ended up being, I think, around $10 million. And then you see in the primary, Marcus Johnson, who raised oh, $8 million, won convincingly with about 20,000 votes, and Marjorie Taylor Greene had about 80,000 or 100,000, and is not going to lose. I mean, she just can't lose. I, I know that in our brains, that's hard to, to, to suss, but that that $10 million that was raised just for the primary, and some of it will be spent in the, in the, in the, in the general election, could be used to entirely flip a state house. In Michigan, and that—that's a crucial thing. We could talk about it later. Why? Why our state house is the most flippable state house in the country, the state senate, according to Larry Sabato's crystal ball. And we could talk about why that's crucial. It's something that I think people understand for democracy that the Republicans are planning on stealing the next election through the state legislatures. And this is the most flippable house. This would save 16 electoral votes, not just for Michigan, but for the entire country. So I think that's you know that's another frame of why why it matters. And then also we have some great women specifically in Michigan who are really representing what it means to fight for democracy. And of course, we have our Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Attorney General Dan Nessel, and then you might have heard of Mallory McMorrow, who everyone saw the speech where she was talking about the Republican attacks on, the depraved attacks on teachers that had been happening you know, throughout this country and, and harnessed rage in a way that Beto O'Rourke did yesterday when he, he confronted Greg Abbott in a way that I think kind of speaks to the voters that we most need to win over and make aware of what is at stake in this November election. It is interesting that Michigan keeps coming up in everything you just said and in every analysis that you read about what's coming up, some of these analysis, uh, you know, analyses coming from people like you and me, Michigan just, it's like a leitmotif that, that keeps appearing. 
For example, not only are, are there the items you raised, messaging, right? There's that, there's that viral speech, fundraising, state houses, where we put our money, the, the critical electoral votes that are at stake here. I, I just, we recently had the scholar Elaine K. Mark, who has been absolutely everywhere. I commend that episode in Beyond Politics to, to everyone. She's, she's someone that people inside the Democratic Party listen to. And she wrote a very famous analysis back almost 30 years ago. She's updated it for today. It's called The New Politics of Evasion. And she points out, look, if we want to hang on here to America, we have to focus on swing states and swing voters. So what's at the very top of her list of swing states? Michigan, the Democratic margin, 2016, minus 0.2 points, Democratic margin 2020, 2.8 points. So we increased by three points. Biggest increase change on that list of swing states. You look at swing voters in those swing states. Again, what appears front and center? Michigan picked up 10 points among moderates, 15 points among independents. So clearly between 2016 and 2020, we were on to something with voters there. And that seems to be a playbook we could run again. So I am going to go ahead and ratify your choice of Michigan as a great lens <laughs> through which, yes, you have my vote, sir, for yes. obviously, obviously, and you bring this up, you, you've given me a sneak peek of your article, which is going to appear uh, on the editorial board, alternate, raw story, those other outlets that are affiliated. You gave me a sneak peek and, and you do start it off by mentioning the most famous recent political aspect of Michigan, which is the fact that it's part of that famed blue wall that collapsed in 2016. We reassembled in 2020 that, that upper Midwest trifecta of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, which are again front and center for, for, for politics. So is that was that sort of your starting point here is kind of looking not just at Michigan, but at those links to that kind of that troika of states? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you don't win in Michigan unless you're competing in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And for that matter, Ohio. One thing that's notable at the end of the 2020 election is how often Joe Biden went to Ohio and how badly he lost it. But that wasn't a bad strategy because whenever you're hitting Ohio, you're hitting Pennsylvania, you're hitting Michigan. And if you're hitting Michigan, you're almost hitting, you're hitting Wisconsin. These are, you're basically campaigning in one area if you're campaigning in any. Famously, Hillary Clinton didn't visit Wisconsin in, in 2016. She was supposed to, and then there was a poll shooting. Uh, mass shootings being a kind of another through line in the whole big story here, and and, and never went to Wisconsin. And, and the focus on these blue wall states, meaning you can't focus on one without focusing on the other. My my perspective is here is Michigan is 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 a good lens because we have a lot of things going for us. I mean, the the, the biggest things, the, the biggest advantages that we have compared to Wisconsin and in, in, in Pennsylvania is in 2018 we passed these incredible ballot initiatives that one was an independent house redistricting, which may not survive Supreme Court next year, but we'll, we'll kind of forget that for right now. And then also automatic vote registry, just a number of measures that made it easier, that made it so easy to vote that that was Donald Trump's kind of big complaint about the state in, 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 in 2000. And, and Pennsylvania kind of echoed some of these things that Republicans went along with some stuff until Donald Trump decided that was the only way he was going to be able to steal election was going against mail-in voting. And we still all have the same thing going on here where Republicans have purposely created a system where mail-in voting doesn't get counted until the, the moment the ballots get closed. So it looks like this, this wild thing happens where the elections get swung, but we all have so much in common, but I think Michigan has the answers in a lot of ways. And, and I think 
one way that, that you kind of see how much we have answers is how, and I think the similar thing has happened in Pennsylvania and we'll see in Wisconsin, is the, the fact that we've been so effective has kind of prompted a collapse of the Republican parties in our state. And they've been nominated when the only qualification for a person to win a, a political office in your party is that you believe Donald Trump should be dictator for life. That brings out some wild folks. So you're not going to get, um, you know, your Tim Pawlenty's, you know, I mean, when that's in a certain way, that's probably good for the Republican party because Tim Pawlenty was boring and basically could only win in Minnesota, but you're not going to solid good candidates who can win over suburban voters. So if you're competing for these We'll call them the Mallory McMorrow voters um, because she really represent. I mean, the thing is, if you live in Michigan, a bunch of Mallory McMorrows. I mean, this is our neighborhoods are filled with these strong women, and they look a lot like Dana Nessel. They look a lot like Gretchen Will, uh, um, Whitmer, and they look a lot like Elson Benson, who's our Secretary of State, who Donald Trump supposedly threatened to have hung for treason um, because she wasn't willing to throw the election to, to to him. So we have these strong women who 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 appeal, who are just want sensible things to be done. They they imagine politics works in a normal fashion. They don't understand quite how extreme the Republican Party is and the, why the filibuster is the death of democracy. They don't know, may not know these things. These are maybe not top of mind issues because they're busy, but these are people who have a sense of what is practical. So when they see Republican Party that is nominating Christine Caramo, who for Secretary of State, someone who was a poll work four years ago, who had no one had ever heard of, and her only qualification is that she believes the election should be overturned and that she thinks Democrats are applauded from Satan. I think that these, these Mallory McMorrow voters look at that and say, this just something isn't right. But also, these Gretchen Whitmer's big campaign slogan in 2018 was fix the damn. It was a very practical statement. She, she was someone who became a big kind of lightning rod for Donald Trump's attacks, but it was a very practical local issue uh, I mean, something that everyone in Michigan understands better than than they want to because our roads are like uh, the moon landscape and you, need, you don't have a moon rover to be driving on them. And so fixing these roads became this extremely practical issue that, that highlighted the extreme the extremeness of the Republican Party. They're talking about these, you know, Italy hacking the election through satellites and um, voting machines and things that make no sense to people. And we're talking about the roads. We're talking about um, retaining the right to control your own body. The more practical we are, the more we make sense of what's actually going on here, the more the extremism of the Republican Party kind of gets exposed. I, I think that's one aspect of what that you can learn from Michigan. And of course, one thing you, you touched on there relating to your governor's slogan, fix the damn roads, is there's a practical real world implications aspect to, to Michigan that I, I think it, it's just... It's sort of the epitome of th there. There are all these jokes that politicians like to tell. They're they're politician jokes. They're not like actual funny jokes. They're 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 good like stump speech jokes because they're like hey, what people laugh at them. Yes, exactly. It's the kind of thing that I got very used to to nodding along to the congressional <laughs> yeah. staffer. One of them is that Republicans run on the idea that government doesn't work, and then they get into office and they set about trying to prove it. And nowhere right. did you see that more and more starkly than in Michigan with the Flint water crisis, which was a human-made, I mean, man-made, it, it was a specific man, it was a man-made crisis with horrible consequences for tens of thousands of people who were poisoned, most of them black, that's not a coincidence. And so again, yeah. when I was referring earlier to Michigan kind of being both a, a leitmotif and a lens for issues going on in America, you do really see this repeated theme, not just in Michigan, but in other places of 
there's just a basic level of government competence. That was one of the things that Joe Biden ran on was, do you yeah. realize how badly Donald Trump fumbled the response to the pandemic and just what a dividend we all get from competence and from not trying to leave our black citizens last so that they bear the brunt of being poisoned by when in a, in a water crisis. So, I, I mean, is that, how has the state reacted? Are you seeing the same thing there that part of the reason that Democrats have, have been able to kind of rejuvenate over the last five to 10 years is that, that stark contrast of competence and avoiding cruelty in, in the actual running of government and returning to some of these bread and butter themes like fix the damn roads. Yeah, I would say that's, that's, that is definitely part of the appeal. I think that when we look at the idea of fixing roads to Republicans, it's something they had, Republicans have controlled the state Senate here, for instance, for 40. This, this talk about fix the roads, you're basically talking about what Republicans misplaced priorities are. Uh, I think it's the kind of sense of misplaced priorities. And I think it's, there's a Midwestern nice kind of thing, and there's a Midwestern competence kind of thing. In fact, Rick Snyder, who is the guy who was president, I mean, I'm sorry, who was governor during the, the Flint water crisis, who appointed the people who made the decision to switch the um, water source away from the Detroit River that poisoned tens of thousands of people. His whole argument to people was, I'm a businessman, I'm competent. I ran Gateway Computer, which by then had been completely <laughs> wiped off the face of the earth. So I'm not sure why people thought he was so competent, but his whole argument was one tough nerd. His appeal to competence is what Republicans in the state used to do all. That's just not something you can do with Donald Trump's Republican Party. And, you, and actually, if you look at even in Republican primaries, what happened in Georgia, um, where Brian Kemp and Raffensperger, I forget his, his name, won, uh, yeah. their appeal entirely was competent. Is competence. People do, Amer Americans imagine politics work way better than they do. They believe that, 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 that the government, you know, why are we just working together? There's a kind of Democratic Party, especially, wants people to work together. And, and, and when, you, when you have a party that's, that's driven by the kind of own and in, in, in the Fox News kind of demographic, you can't appeal to that. And, and, and I think the primaries are the Republican Party's biggest uncle right now. And, and the fact that Donald Trump can't even win if it's not if it involves getting more than 30, 40 percent of his own electorate kind of speaks to the, the, the people aren't responding to that super dictator message, except when it's opposed directly with a Democrat that they can kind of cast as Satan, which is much harder with Joe Biden, which was kind of easy with Hillary Clinton. So I, I do think that that is an extreme aspect of the Republican Party, this, this, this strangeness. I think people don't recognize this Republican Party. But I also think that Roe versus Wade is going to kind of draw this into stark focus. Mm. It's, a very, it's, it's a very real issue for everyone who has a uterus in America. The idea that this is not in their control anymore, a right that they expected to have their entire life, they expected their, their daughters and, and, and any generation after them to go with, in Michigan, we have a law, and actually Michigan is interesting because we're the state where evangelicals and Catholics combined for the first time to do a ballot measure to ban abortion in 1972. Coincidentally, 50 years later, exactly, we are now having the ACLU is leading a ballot resolution that will restore the right of bodily autonomy, will restore reproductive freedom if Roe is gone. It's going to be on the ballot. We have our governor who says, I'm going to sue and say it's not, it's against the Michigan constitution to have, to not be able to control your own body. We have Dana Nessel says, I will never, I won't defend this law that bans abortion and I will never prosecute anyone for it. She can't stop local prosecutors from doing it, but she will never do it. I think this, I think Roe, there's a number of things that kind of make reality come into focus. Mass shooting being one of them, 
something that we can't just hard to not think about when that's just happened. And I, I think Roe versus Wade, I think Republicans are in a certain way, but the way that people underestimated the anger women were going to have when Donald Trump got elected, I think they're underestimating the effect that overturning Roe versus Wade is going to have on uh, a large part of the electorate being people who can give birth and people who love them. It's so interesting that the way you sort of frame that as there is this vein of competent, down-to-earth management that that runs through politics in Michigan that Rick Snyder tried to uphold, Gretchen Whitmer is, is trying to kind of fit in that mold. And we've seen it be successful for Republicans. Look, we're on air in New Hampshire. Chris Sununu, for whatever whatever one says about him as a Democrat, and you're you're sort of obligated to say a lot of not nice things, his brand, his image is as a kind of low-key, down-to-earth, no-nonsense, competent manager. For people in New Hampshire, that is a mold that has been successful for Democrats and Republicans. Vermont, which is as blue as you can get, has a Republican governor, Phil Scott. Same exact brand. Massachusetts, it, I, I'm, I mean, I'm throwing out like the bluest of the blue states. <laughs> it's the exact same mold. For people who say that you can't be successful in the Republican Party anymore, unless you are as Trump as Trump can be, I, I l- let me introduce you to Larry Hogan of, of Maryland. The point is, we, we do have a kind of a framework here that suggests there is another path that voters respond to that, and that the struggle that we're seeing in politics right now is each party trying to paint the other as only being interested in culture war issues. And Republicans saying, well, it's Democrats, they're so woke, and they're into critical race theory, they want to teach white children to be ashamed, and, and all of this junk. And it's Democrats saying, no, what are you talking about? It's Republicans and their extremity on guns, and abortion and their cult-like adherence to Trump. And it's just, it's very, very interesting that that is the exact contrast that you set up in your article here that's gonna kind of play out in all of these races in Michigan. That's the fight that we need to win across the country in 2022 and 2024. One of the things you were saying a few minutes ago, and I wanna invert the usual order of operations that people talk about and think about politics which is kind of top down. They think about the presidential level, then they think about Senate and governor, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing you have been writing and I have been writing and we both care a lot about is is flipping that order. So let's do that here. Let's talk about the legislature. You, You have some evidence here that the Michigan legislature is the best opportunity in the country and it's of paramount importance. So two part question. Just refresh our listeners, because you and I have gone on about this before in the past. Why do we need to focus on the legislature so much? And why is the Michigan legislature so important? Yeah, the Republicans come, have kind of progressively come up with the theories of stealing the presidency that involves past needing the Supreme Court. Because in 2000, if you're like me, I don't know about you, Matt, I you believe the Supreme Court gifted George W. Bush the presidency. Maybe you don't believe that, but you would you would be hard to argue that Donald Trump should have won in 2020 um, because the state legislatures would decide, which these are extremely gerrymandered state legislatures, that he happened to just win. And we didn't like the idea that 
there was a box of in uh, ballots where we didn't like it, so we get to decide who the presidency is. There is a, I think they call it the independent state legislature theory. It's called a number of different things. It's basically Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife's favorite theory for stealing an election in 2020. Uh, um, it's something Donald Trump figured out as the election was nearing and he realized he was going to lose. This idea that state legislatures get to set election laws according to the constitution, so they get to pick the winner of every election especially if that's basically the theory that comes down to. So if you have a Republican state legislature in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, and then a governor who, who will sign off on these things, which is questionable for Georgia, you would do have that probably in Arizona coming around this next time around. You would definitely have that if the nominee in, in Pennsylvania wins and the nominee in, in Wisconsin wins and whoever gets nominated in, in Michigan will, would go along with it. They will no matter what the voters say, they will look at this and say, I read about some fraud on Newsmax, so we get to decide who the, the president is now through the state legislature. In Wisconsin, this is particularly offensive because you could win, I think, 58% of the of the vote in, in Wisconsin, and you wouldn't win either state house. It's just, it's gerrymandered beyond recognition. Pennsylvania is a little better than that. Michigan is way better because, as I told you, we have this ballot initiative. We have an independent redistricting committee that gave us maps that are much fairer. So we have the state legislature and the state senate where we need three houses to flip. We need about seven or eight, depending, seven houses, depending on who, how many seats we hold for the state house. But we only need one state house. And, and that's why Michigan State Senate being the most flippable state legislative body in the country becomes really important. That stops them from stealing this election. We need to do the same thing in Pennsylvania. We can't do it in Wisconsin. And then in Arizona or Georgia. Those are very tough. They're much tougher than, than it is to do it in, in, in Michigan. Michigan is an easy, is, is, an, is our easiest chance to stop Donald Trump's plan. And depending on how many states he wins, it could prevent him from winning the presidency. So it, it would be such a shame, Shonda's my people call if we did not flip this legislature, the stop, just stop the talk, stop the talk from the day of the election. Basically, the only reason Donald Trump's even talk of stealing the election continued on was for two reasons. Mike Pence didn't shut it down for all the talk of Mike Pence being a defender of democracy. He could have shut it down the day Joe Biden won by saying, hey, listen, Joe Biden won. That's just the way it goes. He didn't. He let it go to the last possible moment and almost got hanged because of it. And then the state legislatures, the, the plan that doesn't get talked about enough is Donald Trump just wanted Mike Pence to overturn the election and say, hey, Donald Trump won. I, I have a feeling and that feeling is he's president. But the kind of more moderate um, insurrectionist point of view was Mike Pence should throw it back to the states and give the, the legislatures 10 days to basically declare Donald Trump the winner. That could easily happen in 2024. We should never understate Rick Hasen, who is a, an amazing electoral law expert. Recent guest on this says, show. Recent get I me. Mean, he he is a he is someone everyone needs to lose. He is not someone who is a wild Democrat in any way whatsoever, not a partisan. He is someone who looked at what happened in 2020 and he says, if Kevin McCarthy were the Speaker of the House in in 2020, I'm not sure don't, uh, that Donald Trump would have lost or ever left office. I, I don't know if Joe Biden would be president. I have to tell you, the chances of Joe Kevin I want to call him Joe McCarthy, but uh, Kevin McCarthy not being Speaker of House in in 2024 are very very low. We need to do everything we can to fight on every level to make sure Republicans don't have the apparatus to steal this election. Michigan is just easy pickings when it comes to this. And, and that's why it's, it's just we have a, a moral obligation to make sure that Democrats control at least one state legislature house in Michigan, ideally in Pennsylvania and Arizona as well. What you're really talking about is the idea of leverage. And it's incredible if you're into finance, which I'm not. I couldn't care less, although I do host some financial shows on, on the radio. You, you come back over and over again to this idea of 
you own a small but controlling share of something and you get leverage. You get immense ability to control a much, much bigger field. And that's essentially what you see over and over again with very, very small. It was in Michigan, right, where there was that board of elections that deadlocked initially about whether to uh, accept the, the count of the votes. And, and there was skullduggery around that. I, I mean, there, there are myriad examples. Previous guy, you, you mentioned Rick Hassan, an, another election scholar, Lawrence Douglas, professor, Amherst College, wrote a book called Will He Go? This was before the election. And he laid out right. exactly, exactly the scenarios that we saw play out in the post-election period in 2020 about how Trump and his cronies could try to subvert and overturn the results of the election. One of the scenarios that he laid out that thankfully didn't happen, but easily could, just to, just to illustrate this idea of leverage and how it, you, you don't think about things from the top down. You start from what are the, what are the strategic control points? Where do you get the leverage? One of the, one of the things he pointed out is it would only take a Russian hacker penetrating Detroit Edison, the, the local electric utility, to muck with the power supply on election day in Wayne County, Michigan, seat of Detroit, to fundamentally undermine the, the biggest source of Democratic votes in the state and to essentially deliver a, a Republican result in Michigan. One, one electric utility in one county and boom, you've turned the election to Donald Trump. And so it really resonates with me, this idea of, look, we've got to pick out, we've got to defend these strategic control points in our democracy. They're in these legislatures and one of them, and the easiest one for us to pick up that, that added layer of protection is in Michigan. Of course, Another critical layer and, and, and an absolute must defend wall for us here, I was like Maginot line wall for us is secretaries of state. And that's another area that you have your eye on in Michigan. What's going on with the secretary of state situation there? Yeah, our, our secretary of state is excellent. Dawson Benson literally wrote a book about being secretary of state. We were so lucky that she came into office right when she did. And she is facing Christine Caramo, who basically is her polar opposite of someone who just would just invent any law to make, I mean, they're basically, the, 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 the thing we've been reminded over and over again is you don't need a reason for Republicans to steal election, you just need an excuse. And she's the kind of person who would generate any sort of excuse whatsoever. And, the, and this goes down the line to clerks, county clerks, every county clerk race in this country matters more than Marjorie Taylor Greene's congressional race. There are, I mean, I keep going back to this, there's, there's, there are 60 House seats that are more vulnerable than her, than her seat, and then every county clerk race in this country. They are basically, Rick Hassan, I think, probably told you that he's afraid of the legislatures, and he's afraid of vote counts of actually being spun on, on local levels. And that is something that if you don't have a good secretary of state observing these these clerks, then you're just done. The clerks basically then decide. So it's basically kind of where are our fail-safe systems? Clerks matter a lot. They matter a lot more if you don't have a secretary of state who actually cares about the election. The legislatures matter a lot. They matter a lot more if you don't have a governor who cares. But we've seen even it's great to have a Democratic governor in, in, in Wisconsin. Tony Evers is great. The map that he's wanted to, to do for redistricting got thrown out in minutes because there's not a state Senate. There's, there isn't legislative majorities in either House or on the state Supreme Court. So there's all these kind of fail-safes that, that become extremely important when you have the system being 
it's a, it, it, like cybersecurity, there is just an attack on every element of the system that Donald Trump threw at. And I, I think people, we want to imagine just because he kind of looks like his makeup is done by mortician and he's a complete goof when it comes to talking about politics, that he doesn't know what to do. He has a unique innate sense for, and that's probably because he hates weakness so much himself, but he sees weaknesses in the system. And there are so many weaknesses in our electoral system. If you get a secretary of state like Christine Kermama, if you get a governor like the, the, the Republicans have nominated in, in, in Pennsylvania that just has decided that he was literally at January 6th, if you have someone who is willing to overturn the election in any sort of power, it's the possibility that this could really come um, to a, a total head. Supposedly, then I guess the vice president gets to decide who the who the president is. So this is all if you go by Trump's 2020 theory. But that shows these theories don't matter. It's obviously in 2024. The theory isn't the pre vice president gets to decide anymore. The theory is whoever has power, who is Republican, gets to decide. So it's about keeping key Republicans, especially these Republicans who are just camp in in, in Ravensburger in in, uh, in Georgia are terrible. They're voter suppressors. They are people. Kemp accused um, Democrats of, ha of hacking the electoral system days before his, uh, the race in 2018 and only barely beat Stacey um, Abrams. He is a terrible Republican, but he's an old-fashioned terrible Republican that feels you can only steal elections before they happen. We have a new breed of Republicans, this Trump Republican, that you can steal elections after they happen. And they're, they're typified by John Eastman, who... Literally, you see um, footage of him in 2000 arguing for this 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 theory we're talking about, where legislatures can steal the presidency because even back then Republicans just had more control of legislators than, than Democrats have. Because, in a lot of ways, their geography is on their side, but they've also been, as Matt, this better than anyone, extremely focused on winning local elections. And and I, I think the the lesson that we've been taught in 2016 is every election matters, and that's why we actually were able to flip a very Trump district in, in Michigan or state house district just just a few weeks ago. And this is the guy that you might've heard about. He was talking about his daughters, you know, to, to said lay back and if, if they were attacked and this got around and people recognized who this person was. And even in the, one of the Trumpiest districts in, in the nation, meaning one of the Trumpiest, yeah, in the nation, at least when it comes to a swing state, he lost, he lost by double digits. So I, I think people are responding. I, I don't think Americans have, I don't even think the Republican Party has much tolerance for this kind of the idea that we exist to, 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 to make Donald Trump feel good about himself. But you don't need very many people in these certain key races. And, uh, and that's why every race matters. One of the things that comes up in your article, and I think is a, again, a, a pretty repeated theme, and you just alluded to it throughout our politics here, is we seem to be on the verge of testing not just in the 2022 midterms, but then ultimately in 2024, the proposition of we are going to put up on one side someone who is a combination of crazy and a, a, a Trump, I don't know what you even call them, a, a cultist, a big lie Trump MAGAist, like an old, I, I don't think Biden's thing of ultra MAGA is catching on that Sounds like I know, an energy that's drink. A, like DT would. Yeah, yeah, okay, like a, a, a slightly green energy proposal. Yeah, right, right, right. Like I've got to stay up for my midterm, so I, I slammed an ultra maga and I made it. <laughs> I mean, it but exactly, you've got this. You've got this very interesting contrast that you point to, where you have brave, but also and and accomplished. I don't mean to make, make them sound anodyne by any means, but they're, so they're very accomplished and women leader, but who are very much bread and butter. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to focus on the fundamentals of, of doing our, our, 
elected office versus people who are these ultra MAGA types who are also, in the case of that Republican state senator, a little Marjorie Taylor Greene loopy. And the, the, the question that you seem to be asking in your article, and that I think the question is being put to us as Americans is, are we so far gone in our negative partisanship bubbles that we will, that all that matters is what letter comes after your name and you will vote for the Republican. And thankfully you've shown in Michigan, no, that's, that's not the case with this, with this Republican state center. But that does seem to be what's on the ballot when it comes to your attorney general, your governor. And that's sort of the broad question that, that we're all facing across the country. I think the system has been made intentionally fragile. And I think you're, you're getting at exactly what the problem is here. I think overwhelmingly people want democracy. They want liberal democracy. They want, they have this imaginary idea of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan tipping, tipping glasses and, and solving problems. And, and they want that kind of West Wing ideology of, of everything kind of functioning without understanding how far the Republican Party has gone, how far the Supreme Court has gone, how I think Roe versus Wade is going to an overturn is going to be one of the most profound wake up calls America has had since Donald Trump has been elected. I, I may be overstating that, and I, 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 but I, I do believe that people need to understand how disconnected from reality the system has become, partly because the Democrats aren't as good at politics as Republicans, and Republicans are very good at like Donald Trump, detecting weaknesses, making it so every election swings based on the wind, based on the gas prices, based on inflation. These things that these very temporal are decide a lot. Immigrants have made an electorate that on their side that is extraordinarily, you can't underestimate how engaged people who, who watch Fox News are. They have something new to furious about every day. There's more gun clubs in America than there are McDonald's. There's more mega churches than there are ACLU chapters. You know, I mean, by far, it, it, dwarfs, it dwarfs the number. There is an organized movement on the right that is a minority movement that is that has purposely disconnected our democracy from reality. And part of this, there's a huge attack on the Voting Rights Act was the kind of the, the that was the attack on the system that that just only people who really pay attention really understood what happened once preclearance is gone. And now these states that that have thrived on voter suppression can, can suppress folks at will. I, I think once that's gone, there is no protection in the system except voting. And we see it in Georgia, there was all these new voting suppression laws that passed by people who didn't believe Donald Trump sold the state. Kemp didn't want to give Trump to the state, but he just said, oh, we need to make it harder for people to vote. It was too easy to vote, obviously, because Democrats won. So that's the problem here. So then you have a bunch of people turnout. Turnout's better ever in Georgia. People say, oh, voter suppression. There was a, a great quote on Twitter where someone said, people are responding so well to this shark attack and surviving. It proves that the shark isn't that bad. I think we're seeing that people want elections. They want vote. They want democracy. But when, when, when people have to overcome extraordinary odds just to tread water and keep up the Republicans, the system is just too fragile to last on an ongoing basis. And, and, and our best chance of kind of fixing the system on a whole level was the last year. And I, I think we've kind of seen that pass, but now the vigilance we need to, to kind of apply to every election is, is just, it's at a high level, it's a red alert every time. But I think in Michigan, we've shown that it doesn't look having to do super heroics. It looks like a bunch of women who want to do their job. And I, I think that that's what's kind of hopeful about this. It's a, it, it looks like us. It looks like families who care about their kids. It looks like it looks like outrage when there's a mouse shooting, not instead of you know pretending like we need to have only one door in a, a school and that's going to solve every problem. And I, I think 
there is a kind of there's an a spirit that comes from that coming opposing extremism that 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 isn't <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that people get waving a flag behind but I, I i think it's the kind of practical america it's very midwestern i moved here from california and i've seen it firsthand people like getting the job done and and they resent the fact that republicans think they don't need to do the job and they think that they can just decide they won when they wanted to win. There's some people who go along with that because they have resentment towards Democrats and the groups that align with them. But to a lot of people, that just does not appeal to people. And I don't think that's just a Midwestern thing. It's, again, to me, kind of comes back to this idea of leverage. And it's almost like the Marvel movies where there's a parasite inside. It's like Hydra is inside the Republican Party. You and I were involved in a, in a Twitter thread where we're talking about a recent episode I did that laid out the history. Dr. Randall Balmer has laid this out conclusively and in great detail that the original impetus for the religious right behind pushing for restrictions on abortion wasn't really about abortion. It was an issue that resonated. No one is claiming that it didn't resonate with the base, but evangelical leaders at the time were functionally pro-choice. They basically believed in exceptions and they believed in circumstances. Some of those circumstances even being economic and kind of social welfare for women who felt that they needed abortions. The issue could have gone either way based on the religious views of evangelical leaders 50 years ago, but they were very deliberately, cynically engineered and tipped to go in the direction of being rapidly anti-abortion because that was a way to energize evangelical voters and to get them to vote and to sort of make common cause with other interests. One of those motivating interests was protecting segregation academies in the South. There was a, there's a whole episode. I urge people to check that out. You can yeah. follow LOLGOP on Twitter. You can follow me. I'm Matt L. Robeson. We go into this kind of stuff. But the point is, you see this on issue after issue where a relatively small faction of one party is driving the bus and everyone else in the party is willing to stay on that bus because they're part of the club, they're part of the tribe, they're, they're, they like being on the winning side, they like being in power, and they're okay with it, even though kind of by their acquiescence, they're letting this faction sit in the driver's seat, even in Texas. I just had an episode that came out last week where my expert interviewee was pointing out that the recent Texas law to allow people to to, to carry firearms in, in public places without any permit, that was a law that was opposed by a majority of Texas voters, Texas voters, folks. And so once again, small minority exercising massive leverage over the majority. But now it feels like while we're sort of the the story of the frog that's in a pot of water that's slowly brought to a boil, doesn't notice, and then it's cooked. Well, now I think, hopefully, people are noticing, my gosh, it's getting hot in here. And you close your article, and we'll, we'll have to leave off here because we've just got about a minute left. But you, you close your article by saying, look, right now, these super Trumpy people in Michigan are kind of defeating themselves. But if we've learned anything from 2016 and the last few years, it's you cannot take that for granted that people will wake up, see they're in boiling water and say, okay, now I'm jumping out. We've got to actually work for it. I, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to you just to, just to kind of close this out here. But to me, that sounds like your big 
take home for, for your readers? Yeah, we need to be as relentless and practical. I think I concluded the last podcast the same way that Republicans make alliances with whoever they need to make alliances to. And that's maybe Donald Trump's kind of downfall is he's not doing that as much anymore. But Democrats can't do that. We just can't afford to sit this out because of an inability to make alliances and an inability to be practical. I'm all for being as progressive as possible. But this time around this election, democracy is at stake and we cannot be anything but ruthless about defending it. Couldn't agree more. Uh, amen to that. And uh, I love reading all of your work. You can find the work of Jason Sattler on the editorial board, on Alternet, on Raw Story, on all, all kinds of outlets. You can you can Google them or you can just go to Twitter and become one of the legions. I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of people follow you as LOL, GOP, your sort of superhero social media alter ego. I'm sure that comes with a cape and a cowl. And of course, I'm there as Matt L. Robeson as well. You can follow me too. Hey, please, that, that, that would be great. All right, Jason, thanks so much for running all this down for us. Thank you, Matt.